Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. Amen. You can take a seat. Well, I haven't met you yet. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm so glad you're here worshiping with us today. Uh, In a few minutes here, we're going to be looking at a passage in Luke chapter 4, if you want to be turning there. If you came today and you don't uh, have a Bible or if you've got your Bible, we actually have some Bibles uh, available for you. Uh, there's some back in kind of this little lobby area, or James Robertson here has some. So you, you just slip your hand up if you if you need a Bible. We want you to have one to be able to look at us, uh, look at those passages with us. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can feel free to take this Bible home with you as as just a, a gift from us to you. But here in a few minutes, we're going to be looking at a passage in in Luke chapter uh, four. But we're beginning a series today, as Matt mentioned, called Jesus, Friend of Sinners. Uh, where we're going to be talking about something that we talk a lot about here at Christ's Covenant, and, and that is that the Christian life is filled with both inward-facing and outward-facing relationships. That's an important thing uh, for you to know, for you to remember, that Christian life is filled with both inward-facing and outward-facing relationships. And so our inward-facing relationships as Christians are our relationships with other Christians, right? So this in large part, is uh, an inward-facing relationships. It's not exclusively inward-facing. If you're not a believer, I'm so glad you're here. You're welcome to come. We want you to come and, and explore Christianity along with us. But primarily, this is a, a gathering of believers uh, to both to, to kind of face in and to face up toward the Lord, to worship the Lord together, to, to, to seek to be edified, to seek to deeper understand uh, the wonder and the mystery of the gospel. This is one of the reasons we push our small groups ministry so often, our community groups ministry. We want you to have inward-facing relationships with other believers. And if you're not plugged into a group, come and see me. I want to help you get plugged into uh, a group. They're, they really have 23 groups, actually. They meet all over the city every night of the week. There's some that meet here. So there's, there's really a lot of places to connect uh, if you haven't connected. So that's inward-facing relationships. But when we leave here... Uh, we're going to scatter. We're going to scatter all over the city. You're going to scatter different neighborhoods, to different jobs, to different schools. Uh, and when we scatter, many of our relationships are what is then called outward-facing relationships, relationships that we have as Christians with people that don't know the Lord, that don't see the world in the same way that we do through the lens of Christ as one who knows God in Christ. That is a radically, if that is true of you, if you're claiming that about yourself, to be a Christian, that is a radical claim and it will necessarily affect the way that you live your life. And so all then of your relationships with people that aren't believers are outward-facing relationships. And, and, and how we understand those two types of relationships, very important to the Christian life and very important to the mission of God. Something that has sadly been lost, uh, I think, in the way that we understand the church in the late 20th and early 21st century is that the church is not a place. The church is not an event. The church is the people. And sometimes those people are gathered like we are now. But most of the time, those people are scattered. And we need to think uh, missionally and Christ-centeredly about both of those times, when we're gathered and when we're scattered. You are no less the church in an hour from now when you scatter out all over the city than you are right now. So over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at different encounters that Jesus has in the Gospel of Luke and I think there's a lot to learn from these different encounters. They're, they're encounters, if you will, that Jesus had with, with outsiders, with his outward-facing relationships. And, and some of these encounters that Jesus has are, are people that, that you would expect to be far outside of who would be known as a, a person of God or a follower of the man of God. And uh, to, to help us with this, I wanna, I, we want to, throughout this series, tell a few stories. Hear a few real-life stories today about how people, uh, that people, some of them that were really even despised by the world, encountered Jesus in a life-changing kind of way. And so if you'll join me, I, I want to welcome a dear friend of mine, Rachel Helton, to the stage. And uh, she's going to share uh, just a little bit of her story with us. Rachel, welcome to Christ's Covenant. Rachel normally lives in uh, Blairsville, Georgia, beautiful place to call home. She, um, we really became friends when uh, she lived in Birmingham. But I, I just mentioned Rachel 
uh, these kinds of relationships that Jesus has that he, he, he finds people sometimes in the most uh, unexpected places. And uh, so often in his gospel, it seems that he's, he's looking for people that have really been rejected or are even despised by the rest of the world. So catch us up to where you were in life when you first met Jesus in a real and life-changing way. Well, I, um, I love how you'd say like how Jesus found us because lots of people will say, well, I found Jesus. And that wasn't my story at all because I wasn't really looking to find Jesus. And uh, I wasn't, you know, wanting to hang out with him very much. So anyways, <laughs> I, um, I was born and I'm from Georgia. I'm from Northwest Georgia. I uh, was not born into a Christian family. I actually was born into a broken home. There's a lot of abuse. And I was abused from a very young age. And so I wasn't, I didn't have a father figure. And I felt um, very unloved. And I had no respect for myself being sexually abused at first time at seven years old. And going into my teens, I was like, where do I fit? I didn't make very good grades. I, I didn't have involved parents. And so I found myself wrapped up in drugs and sex in that life and um, got pregnant at a very young age and had my son and not having an education and not having any support. I ended up falling into the adult entertainment industry and that began a very, very dark place in my life. And over, over the years, um, many, many bad things happened to me. And I uh, I ended up, I was working here in Atlanta, and July, I mean, November 2012, I was at a, a place in my life where I I had no self-esteem, I didn't know where I was going, my son, my, my son was living with my mother, and I really felt like I was at the end of myself, and suicide to me seemed like the only, the only way out. And so I went into the club that I worked at, and I was gathering my things up. And in comes a group of ladies, and uh, I call it the church ladies. And they would just, <laughs> they would just come in uh, just from time to time, like once a month, and bring us meals. And they, they didn't come in with Bibles. You just knew that they were from the church because they, they really, they were a light in the darkness. And I mean, literally were glowing when they came in. And so I was like, I got to get out of here because I'm not trying to talk to these ladies. And uh, there was so much shame. I, I didn't even want them to see me. And my friend Meredith came up to me and she just starts talking. And you didn't know her at that time? No, yes, no. Yeah. I will. I, no, actually Meredith, I didn't know at all. I knew some of the ladies, but I, just from them coming there. But she came up to me and she starts, she's like, uh, are you okay? You look a little upset. And uh, I just tore into her and I was like, well, let me just tell you something. And let me tell you something about God. And I knew nothing about God, but I just thought if, if there's a God, why are we here? And I looked at her and said, this is hell on earth. Like you don't understand what's happening to these girls here. And, uh, she just listened and prayed with me, and I left that night feeling like some kind of hope. And um, on the way home, and still this battle in my mind to end my life or to press on, I felt the presence of the Lord, of Jesus. And I knew, and I remember I didn't come from a Christian home. I know I'm from the South, so you have some knowledge of Christ, but I, I I like had this overwhelming sense of the Lord and I went home and I slept and I woke I oh, actually went to my mom's house and I woke up and I was like mom I, I think I met Jesus and she was like okay you know <laughs> all right and um she was like well that's nice you just gotta know my mom she's super southern and uh <coughs> anyways I told her I was like I need I need help well Meredith had given me her phone number and I called her, and I was like, hey, I, I, need, I need, like, rehab or something. Because in the midst of all this, of course, I was on drugs and um, was going through detox. And, I, you know, I had nowhere to go. 
And so we meet, and she tells me about this place called Wellspring, and it's for women who were in the sex industry or trafficked. And uh, it was faith-based, and I had had this encounter, and but I was like, I don't know about, you know, I don't know about that. And so whenever I went into the program, I was relieved, you know, I was just thankful to be somewhere safe and to be sober. And, uh, <laughs> no, I, I just, I just, <laughs> yeah. I ramble, so I don't want to ramble. <laughs> no, no, I want you to keep going. I mean, uh, so I mean, what, what's so amazing about your story, Rachel, is, so that's where you were mm-hmm. when you began, just began to in, encounter Jesus. And, uh, and of course, you know, you know, I know how the story has progressed, uh, but, but I think what's so amazing about it is, is it's not like you just, you just had this like kind of one-time encounter and then you fell back into kind of your old habits or behavior, kind of hear those stories. But this was like really a 180 repentance and faith. Your life was changed. I mean, again, I know it's, it's not like immediate, but, but so you started Wellspring and then, and then tell us about that process and then kind of where you went from there. Okay, this is my, I, I, this is my favorite part of this story. Like, I, I do have difficulty telling before Wellspring. So, but this is so, this was, this is the we're most We're past exciting. that part now. Yeah, so we're, now. we got through it. <laughs> yeah, whew, yeah. So, all, okay, I was really broken, and a lot of things happened during those years. And so, I got to Wellspring, and I come through the door, and I, I mind you, I've been sober at this point for two days, like 48 hours, and if you know any anyone who ever came off of drugs, like, it's bad. They're sick, physically sick, tired. And uh, I look back now, and I'm like, man, probably should have went to the hospital, but the Lord had me. And I go in, and there's this lady standing there. Her name is Alma, and she was my therapist. Uh, she, she, I didn't know at the time, but she was going to be my therapist for the next nine months. And she, like, opens her arms and is like, do you need a hug? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah, I do. And so... <laughs> Um, I go in, they do like their intake and I'm completely out of it. And then at nighttime, every night they would read the Psalms and then in the morning, the Proverbs. And whenever they were reading the Bible, I never read the Bible ever. And so I, I, the Psalms and Proverbs, especially, I didn't know anything about. So they're reading the Psalms. I think this is like the second day I'm there. And the scripture said, that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. And I was like, well, that's me. Like, uh, that's great. If that's really true, then he can have my life. I said this to the lady. This is what I said. And she was like, you, you want to give your life to Jesus? I was like, well, he can have it. Look at it. Why would, I mean, I don't want it. And so uh, that was honestly how it went. And she, she held my hand and she prayed with me. The, the sinner's prayer, and she, and I really didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know, but I, I wanted, I wanted Jesus. Like, if, it, if, if he's close to the broken heart and crushed in spirit, and he's the creator of the world, then that is what I want. And, um, you know, but I knew, like, Christians, <laughs> you know, like, they, they I, in my mind, they were, like, goody-goodies, and, and I was like, I don't know if I can ever do that. But, but the, <laughs> the Lord is gracious so this lady prays with me, and um, she's she's from Africa. They're they're very charismatic. She like jumps up from the seat and she's dancing and singing. She's super excited, and then I get excited, and I'm like, then this is a big deal. <laughs> and, it is a big deal. Uh, it yeah. is a huge deal. And so, so you would say, I mean, that's that's when you mm-hmm. understood, like Jesus maybe was seeking after you, but yeah. you really understood. Okay, I, I'm mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I'm caught. I'm yeah. In. Yeah. And I mean, and I was, and me, if I do anything, I do it with a hundred percent. Like I'm an extremist and like here, here, which sometimes is a bad thing, but, and this aspect is really good. So I just decided I'm, I'm going to stay, I'm going to work this program and this program poured into me for the next nine months and God's word just came alive and I was reading his words, just devouring it. And uh, of course I was there and, and I was in this bubble Well, I had nowhere to go after that because I lost everything, my money, my car, my house. I let it all go so I could get sober and I could follow Jesus. And I just trusted him. And 
I, that, I, I wish I could tell you that's easy, but it wasn't. It was, it, was, it was hard, but I did. I trusted him and gave my life to him, and I ended up in Birmingham at Jason's church, and, uh, which was interesting, too. It was a lot of... It was a big Southern Baptist church, and uh, it, we were. She said there's a lot of Baptist Bettys there. Be- Betty, the yeah. Betty Baptist. Be- Betty Baptist. Yeah, and so when I got there, uh. I was like, uh, "Wow, this is really different." But y'all, that church. <laughs> I mean, they. I I was this girl off the streets <laughs> from Atlanta, and I was a really rough around the edges. And I really rough around the edges. And this lady, Miss Amy and Mr. David, they took me in, let me live in their basement, and I had to relearn everything. And I, I, I yeah, I'd had this time with Christ, this very spiritual, like nine months. But I was in a bubble. I wasn't in the world. And so being in the world and um, applying God's word is is pretty tough. And so Miss Amy came into my life, and she really nurtured that yeah. for me. Well, and of course, this is where, like, I, I, obviously, we, we first met Rachel right. She was coming out of Wellspring. And, you know, this time in your life, Rachel, I mean, like, I remember, like, you didn't, like, even, like, simple, like, skills because you, you grew up in a broken home. You'd had this really rough, like, adolescent years and, you know, really rough young adulthood. And just even things like, I remember, like, you know, trying to, like, learn how to use money and, like, even, like, cleaning your room and getting a job. I mean, you know, Paige tells the story when Paige was trying to help you find a job and you said, well, I just... I don't have any, I can't do anything. I don't have any skills, you know, and nothing. <laughs> yeah. I mean this, but it just was a great picture of like your, what you felt about yourself yeah. at that time. And then just to see how the Lord just started b- making a new creation in you. M- making a new creation and bringing the people in my life. Like, like Jason said, like we're gathered, but we scatter. And it was just the church who built me up, taught me, you know, finances and different things like that, work ethic. And and again, these were just like normal people just too. Just normal like, people. Like Amy, she's talking about, the, the lady that like really She's a little her. bit of a Betty Baptist. Oh, <laughs> she is a <laughs> Betty Baptist. I mean, this is just like, but I'm going to say like, this is just like a suburban, like Beth Moore loving, church going yes. lady. <laughs> and, and, yes. and like, and, and she had a high school age daughter and so, I mean, just think about this. This is, I mean, like, like the suburbanite of suburbanites, right? Yes. And she had this, this woman who, you know, nine months before had been, you know, on the streets of Atlanta to come and live in her house with her, like, 15-year-old daughter. It's just an amazing, like, act of obedience on her part. And it wasn't like she really had any experience. Like, you yeah, know, no. she, like, grew up in, like, a perfect little American household. I mean, so, like, she had no experience with anyone like you ever, and all of a sudden, you're living in her house. No, yeah, right. And that was exactly what I needed because I, I didn't need somebody that come from my lifestyle. I needed someone who had lived a normal one. And so my, I laugh, but I said this to someone sometime. I said, yeah, Miss Amy raised me from 25 to 29. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean it. Like, she had to teach me so much. So, yeah, I lived with her. And then I did not have custody of my son, like I said. So then he came and lived with us. So she now has... Uh, her daughter Kate, me, and Zeke, and I, I had probably maybe a sixth to seventh grade education, so I couldn't really help my son that much, and she, she, she tutored him, and we got him straightened out, and me and him had the the funniest relationship. We, it was more like brother Zeke's and right sister. Over here. Yeah. So, raise your hand, Zeke. So, <laughs> That's Zeke. Glad you're here, brother. <laughs> Yeah, I speak about, he was, oh, he's so smart, and he's been through so much, but, so, yeah, then we moved out, and I don't want to ramble, but after, when we, we got on our feet, we moved out, and I went and worked for Chick-fil-A, I could talk y'all's head off about Chick-fil-A, I've been with Chick-fil-A for four years now, I'm a biscuit lady now, but (laughs) I, I love it, I used to manage, now I don't have to, I just make biscuits, right? Well, and that, so, but I, what I found... That was so amazing about this story is like, just to watch kind of this transformation, like here's a, a young woman that had come to us from Wellspring and, you know, just a few years later, and it, it felt like it kind of happened fast. I know it was, it felt like it was slow for you and it was hard for you and it was incredible, it required incredible courage and incredible fortitude. But for me, like watching on this side, I mean, I just, just from seeing where Rachel had come from to, you know, all of a sudden she's doing these amazing things. And then all of a sudden she gets a job at Chick-fil-A and then she's a manager at Chick-fil-A. And then all of a sudden her 
her son who had been taken away from her is now living with her and she's raising him. And then she moves out and gets an apartment on her own. And then she's serving in our church every week. And then, and then she like becomes a leader in our church where she's kind of one of the, when she starts speaking, like people like really listen, like one of the most admired voices. And I really mean that in our, in our church. And it was just amazing just in a course of like, like three years to watch just a total transformation and it was just the ministry of Jesus through people, like you said, uh, in that time. Yeah, and I, speaking of the church, when I left Wellspring, I picked up with a new therapist through Valleydale Church, and his name was Lou. And um, the it, uh, on top of the body, Lou played such a huge part because I was believing major lies about myself. Like, I didn't think that I could really be better educated, and I was dumb, you know. And I was, and when I first went to him, I don't know if you even know this, but I was like, I will never marry. I will never trust a man. I hate men. Uh, but these, the Betty Baptists are great, but I don't want to be around the guys. And, and I hate that the male counselor yeah. was the only person. The Bobby I, Baptist. Bobby Baptist. Watch out for <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. yeah, and Lou is was he's a tough man. He's a, he's a tough man, and and he is like, look, this is what the Lord's provided <laughs> you with. I if you will let me, I want to counsel you biblically. These are not my words; these are God's words. Do you trust the Lord? That's pretty much what he said. And I was like, I guess, but there has to be a woman in the room. And uh, so, anyways, he he was my therapist up until I left. I was there in Birmingham for for right at five no four and a half years and he was my therapist up until I left and so uh that that was I miss Lou. well and and uh mm-hmm. you know the the to catch you up to speed right at about a year ago last November uh Rachel married this wonderful man over here Nathan Helton and uh and uh he has three boys and then Zeke so there's you're living with five men now <laughs> uh so, and my dog is a boy okay, too. Okay, and you have a male dog. Uh, so uh, it's just such an uh, it's yeah. such an amazing amazing story. Just tell us y'all's love just a little bit. You don't have to give us like the super detail, oh, but like well, okay, I'll, I'll make it quick. Y'all fell so, for each other though. Yeah, quick. And uh, it was it, but Rachel literally like called me one day. She goes, "Can you marry me and Nathan like in three weeks or whatever?" <laughs> uh, That's yeah. the truth because I wasn't playing around. Like I, I waited all this time. <laughs> So I, d- I didn't date very much through those years, and um, I would suggest that to anyone who is coming out of anything, like, you need to just really focus on the Lord and, and just the Lord and not date. So I went, I guess, like two years, didn't even talk to another, the opposite sex. And so um, anyways, when I met Nathan, uh, first of all, he called me, and, and he was a youth pastor, and, and I, he was so soft-spoken. I was like, oh, gosh, he didn't ever handle me. I'm just like a wrecking ball. I love the Lord. I'm just still a little rough around the edges sometimes. And <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, but I would have talked to him, and I, like, tell him my story. I was like, oh, so I used to work in a strip club, but then I met Jesus in a strip club, and I used to be on drugs, but I'm off drugs. I've been clean for it. You know, I give him the rundown. And, I, and I'm like, and he's like, oh, okay. So um, <laughs> you want to have brunch? And so we went for brunch. <laughs> hey, so great he, lead into a brunch date right there. Yes. yes. And so he came all the way over to Birmingham from Blairsville. We had brunch and we hit it right off. And that, 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 I was like, I, I, I'll, mar- I'll marry you. Like I, we, we should get married. Yeah. And um, even like, okay, so there was like some on and off and like, I'm not really sure what the Lord wants. Not on my part. I knew what the Lord wanted and I knew what I wanted. And uh, it's so long story short, we were married in three months and I, I, I did call Jason. I was like, so I think we're going to get married. What are you doing? Auburn's playing. On, yeah. <laughs> when is, you know, are you going to be in Auburn that weekend? Well, we'll get married on Sunday instead of Saturday because... <laughs> And so we got. Don't confess my sins. To the, to the, to the so yeah, we actually we got married on. Here's the cool part, like drum roll. We got married on November twelfth, two thousand seventeen. Exactly five years later, after I went into Wellspring on November twelfth, two thousand twelve. Cool. Cool. So. 
Yeah, that was, it was awesome. It's been a great year. It's been an awesome year. And I'm sure, and now I have four kids. I went from one to four. And I don't know, they maybe take care of me more than I. Yeah. <laughs> they're just added. They take care of me, but they're good boys. Well, the Helton family, Rachel, God obviously has used you in a huge way in my life and in some people's lives, and he's used you today. And I know he wants to continue to use you. So thank you for coming and being here. Can we thank Rachel and Nathan for sharing that story? Thanks. Good job. Well, uh, I'm glad that y'all have, uh, thanks so much, guys. I'm glad y'all have had a chance to, to meet Rachel. She's just been an amazing friend and part of mine and Paige's story. And um, it's just so great to see how God has um, taken this woman who, as I said, was, was despised and was devalued and not loved by the world and how Jesus met her and has changed her and is shaping her. And um, the reason I know that was the Lord, because that's, that's what the Lord does. And uh, we see testimony of that in his word. So I, I do want to, you to read with me from Luke chapter 4, verse 16 through 30. Um, Luke chapter 4, verse 16 through 30. This is um, the testimony of the gospel writer Luke, writing these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. So let's hear together the word of Christ. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and all eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years uh, and six months, and great famine was all over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was there and who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is one of the most famous scenes in the ministry of Jesus, kind of the beginning of his ministry, but it's commonly misunderstood. There is a lot to this passage, more than I can get to today, but two things that I want us to think about today as uh, we consider these words from the gospel writer Luke. First of all, the posture, as I mentioned, the posture that Jesus has toward outsiders And then secondly, the response of the insiders, the the posture that Jesus has towards outsiders and the response of the insiders. So let's look at Jesus's posture toward outsiders. Well, when Jesus came and said these things there in Nazareth, it was an announcement. He was reading from the prophet Isaiah. This was a, a famous passage that people in his town would have known very, very well. Uh, the prophet Isaiah was one of the most formational, foundational prophets. And Zay, Isaiah talks about this coming Messiah. There is a messianic figure in the prophet, in the prophet Isaiah. And a guy named Alec Matir, who, who is an Old Testament scholar, I think clarifies uh, how the prophet Isaiah describes this coming messianic figure, this, this coming Messiah. And he says there's three bit major sections where the messianic figure is described as a king, in one section, he's described as a servant 
in uh, another section, and this gets a lot of commentary, but in, in the, the, the final section of Isaiah, this messianic figure is described as the conqueror. And, and of course, this is where this passage is coming from, from Isaiah 61 here, this conqueror that would come and redeem Israel. And so rightly understood, if you, if you understand the, the, the Messiah through the lens of Isaiah, he was a servant king who conquers. He was a servant king who brings forth the kingdom of God. And, and, and necessary for this, necessary for this conquest, and we see this all throughout the Old Testament, is the anointing of the Spirit of God. The anointing of God on the head or on the life of the conqueror. And so we see this throughout the scripture. Uh, Graham, Blake, and Matt Nolan and myself are actually volunteering for the Good News Bible Club at E-Rivers. And it's a lot of fun. I, I really like it. I have the first graders. They're great. Uh, and we go through these stories with the little kids there at E-Rivers Elementary. And we've actually been talking about this. Two weeks ago, we talked about the anointing uh, that was on King Saul, the first king of Israel, God's authority was on Saul. And when the anointing of the Spirit of God is upon you, you go out and you conquer and you go out and you reign. And, and as, as the anointing of God was upon the leaders of Israel, uh, power was with them and authority was with them and victory was with them. But of course, there was a scene where, of course, Saul sins against God. He, he disobeys God in terms of offering the sacrifice. And very clearly, uh, the scripture says that the, the anointing, that the Spirit of God left him, that the, the anointing, the special anointing that God had given Saul as king of Israel left him. And of course, it was passed over to David. And of course, we read about David. And remember what happened when he fell into great sin, uh, with, his shin, with his sin with uh, Uriah the Hittite and with Bathsheba. What happened? Of course, he's praying. This is a famous passage of scripture. He's praying in Psalm 51. Please, God, don't take your spirit from me. Don't take your spirit away from me. So all throughout the scripture, there is this anointing that goes along with conquest, that goes along with the one who conquers. And what's interesting here though, what Jesus is saying in this text is that my kingdom, my conquest is going to be very different from the conquest of Saul or of David or, you know, another one of my favorite Bible stories is of Samson when, remember, the, the anointing of God was on Samson. He had this great strength, but of course he disobeyed God. He had his hair cut and his strength was taken away. At the very end, though, the anointing of God came back on him and he destroyed this Philistine temple. What Jesus is saying here is, my kingdom, my conquest is going to be very different than these conquests, than, than this type of anointing. My conquest, my kingdom is going to advance through preaching. It's going to advance through proclaiming liberty for captives. It's going to advance through the recovery of sight to the blind. It's going to advance through freeing those who are oppressed, through proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. So, so Israel, don't think that my conquest is coming by the sword. No, it's not coming by the sword. It's coming, it's coming by something even more powerful than the sword. It's coming by my word. My word that brings forth my kingdom. Now clearly in this passage, in these words of Christ, as he reads from Isaiah, these are, these are movements of, of physical healing. These are movements of, uh, of people being physically freed from bondage. And I think there's definitely, there's necessarily a physical manifestation of these things. But I think what Jesus also has in mind is a spiritual manifestation. I have come for those who are spiritually blind. I've come for those who are spiritually oppressed. I've come for those who are spiritually captive, spiritually in bondage. And Jesus is saying, this is how my kingdom really advances. When those who are spiritually blind, when those who are spiritually afflicted, when their eyes are opened up, when their hearts are opened up, when they are freed from their addictions, when they are freed from the sin that is holding them captive, when they are freed from the schemes of the evil one, that is where my kingdom truly moves forward. 
Now, just to be clear, when, when this spiritually happens, so often it physically happens. And when it physically happens, so often it spiritually happens. We, we see the, the physical freedom, physical healing, spiritual freedom, spiritual healing. We see these themes and these two things, two ideas going together all throughout the scripture. But this is what Jesus is saying. He's announcing something that's unique, something that is special about his kingdom. And, and where he goes from here is he begins to illustrate this in a very strange uh, but also powerful way. Look at verse 24 again with me. It says that truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth I tell you there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and great famine came over the land and Elijah went to none of them, but he only went to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now, this is kind of an obscure story in the Old Testament. Elijah, very strangely, was directly told by God to go and stay with this widow. We read about Elijah kind of living with this widow at this time. And in the middle of him living with her, the most horrible thing happens, her son dies. Now, keep in mind, this was a time when there's no life insurance, there's no social security. And so if you are a widow, your only hope is that your children would take care of you. And if your children die, then your only hope is to become a beggar. Your, your only hope at this point is just is simply the mercy of others. But in 1 Kings 17, we, we read about Elijah just happening to be there by the, by the call of God at this incredibly needy time, this broken time, this physical poverty time that this lady was experiencing, and of course, Elijah in a miraculous way raises this boy from the dead. He saves her from physical poverty, and what we read there is that she believed in the God of Israel. This, this woman of Sidon, it was modern day Lebanon, this, this, this woman of Zarephath, this outsider, this, this woman who had nothing to do with Israel, came to believe in the God of the Hebrew people. She was not only freed from her spiritual captivity from her spiritual poverty she from a physical captivity or physical poverty she was freed from her spiritual poverty from her spiritual captivity she experienced the lord's favor this is what jesus is saying my kingdom is like my kingdom is like this two things here that that i believe jesus is, is saying the first is that the, the conqueror has come the conqueror the anointing is on me my kingdom is going to go forward but it's going to advance in a way, and it's going to advance among people that you would never expect. The people of Israel, they wanted it to advance by the sword. They wanted it to advance by conquering the Romans, by, by pushing out all of their enemies. But Jesus is saying, that's not what my kingdom is like. My kingdom is going to advance with healing, with the proclamation of good needs. My kingdom is going to advance among the poor. My kingdom's even going to advance among these outsiders. Among these people from other nations that you have nothing to do with. And the second thing that Jesus is saying here is, is in line with that is I am the conqueror and my kingdom will advance among enemies. Bringing them together as a new people. What Jesus is very clearly saying when he points to this woman of Zarephath. He's saying this person who is your enemy, she is the one that's going to be your sister. She is the one that's going to be joined with you in this kingdom. And, and if, if he's not clear enough with Zarephath, he doubles down in verse 27. Look with me at that passage. He says, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of the lepers was killed, only Naaman, and then he says it, the Syrian. Now this story is found in 2 Kings 5, and it's, amazing. it's an amazing story. Syria was really Israel, particularly the people of Judah's chief rival. And if you know anything about current geopolitics, Syria and Israel still, to this day, do not get along. And, and, and I would say that the, the rivalry or the division between these two nations was even more intense in the time of 2 Kings than it is today. The Syrians hated the people of Israel. They hated the people of Judah. These Jewish people hated the Syrians. And for good reason, the Syrians were terrorizing them. They would come into their villages, they would burn villages, they would kill their men, they would steal their goods, they would steal women and children and take them back to, to Syria. It was a terrible, horrific time. And Jesus brings up Naaman. And now Naaman wasn't just a little widow. 
that just so happened to live in Syria at the time. You know, she can't help it where she lives. She found herself in Syria. She's a little widow. Of course, Elisha is going to be kind to her. No, Naaman is the problem. He was a captain of the army. He's the one that's leading the raids. In fact, we read in 2 Kings, the only reason that he knew about the prophet Elisha back in Israel was that he had a slave girl that he had taken from Israel. So keep in mind this. Th- think about this, what this guy had done. He had gone into Israel. He had had a raid. He ripped a child away from her family, and then she was serving him in his household. That's how the guy even knows about this prophet that lives in Israel. This is Naaman. And yet, of course, he reaches out to Israel, being so sick in his leprosy. You can imagine this guy's tried everything. You know, when you're reaching out to your rival, when you're reaching out to the person that you hate, it is a desperate, desperate situation. At first, the king of Israel in that story, and I'm just very telling it very briefly here, but at first, the king of Israel didn't want to let him come in. He said, it's a trap. He's just planning this, you know, he's just going to come in under the guise of leprosy, but he's really here to kill us. We cannot trust Naaman, but of course, eventually Elisha convinces him they meet. And some of you might remember the story. Elisha tells Naaman to go and bathe in the Jordan River seven times. and will be healed of his leprosy. And even then, Naaman is a little defiant. You know, he says, the Jordan, well, there's, there's better rivers in Syria There's better rivers in my home country. Surely you don't want me to bathe in the Jordan. But eventually Naaman consents and the most amazing thing happens. He's healed. He's healed of this horrible disease that he's desperate from. And Naaman, the Syrian, the leader of the army, the terrorist of Israel, comes to believe in the God of Israel. He is saved. He, his, his heart is changed. He comes to worship the God of the Hebrews. So the first thing that Jesus is saying here is, look, my kingdom is going to go forward in a different way, in a way that you've never expected before, to people that you would never expect to come in. And more than that, I am going to bring enemies together as friends, not by the sword, but by the change of heart, by the change of a mind, by the change of a life. Now, of course, we've talked about this. So that's the first first point. Here's the posture of Jesus toward outsiders. But the second thing that we need to look at now is the response of the insiders. Now, we read the the end of the story in Luke 4 before. When, When the people heard this, when the people there in Nazareth heard Jesus saying all of these things, they were furious. They wanted to throw him, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to throw their own countrymen over the brow of the hill, it said. Now, I've actually heard this passage preached before, and and I've heard people say, because when Jesus declares from Isaiah, this prophecy is fulfilled in your midst, I am the anointed one, I am the Messiah. I've heard people say it was just too much for the people, all right? They couldn't believe what Jesus was saying. They couldn't believe that, that he was the Messiah. And so they got angry and threw him over the, tried to throw him over the brow of the hill. But that's not a careful reading of the text. That's actually not what happens here. When they first heard that Jesus is declaring himself to be the Messiah, that he's declaring himself to be the anointed one, what do we read in verse 22? It says, and all spoke well of him. And they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his house. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? This is Joseph's son, right? This is our guy. This is our hometown boy. Jesus is our hometown hero. Who knew the Messiah is going to come from Nazareth? Finally, we'll be put on the map. Finally, we will be victorious. He is our guy. And what what does Jesus say to them? He says, you guys have no idea what I'm saying. You have no idea what, you're, what you think I'm about to do here. When you really know what I've come to do, I will have no honor in this town. You will hate me. And of course, that's exactly what happens. Verse 28, when they heard these things, particularly when they heard about Naaman, the Syrian, it says they were all filled with wrath. They rose to drove him, drive him out of the town. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is an amazing story because these are the people that were the closest to Jesus. I mean, these are the hometown folks. 
And they, they were the ultimate insiders. I mean, they knew Jesus from a child. They, were the, they should have been the first to believe. And yet these were the ones that rejected Jesus. And so as we think about this, as we think about, first of all, Jesus' posture toward outsiders, and secondly, the response of the insiders, I, I want us to, and this can be really practical, I just have five things for us to think about when, when we're responding to Jesus. Five things that I want us to think about as we respond to Jesus. And the first thing is this, the true Jesus. When you have met the true Jesus, he is always disruptive, okay? This story seems strange because Jesus is so disruptive and people in the town are filled with such emotion, but this is not a strange story. This is very true to the character of Jesus. When you really meet Jesus, when you really encounter the true Jesus, he is always, just like this, he is, he's always disruptive. Actually, Rachel made mention of it earlier. She grew up in Georgia, right? She grew up in like Rome, Georgia. Like she's heard about Jesus. She knew about Jesus and it meant nothing to her. His word, his name, it meant nothing. It had never it penetrated her life. It meant nothing in her life. It didn't disrupt her life. But then she met the real Jesus and, and everything changed. It was totally disruptive for where she was. Now, I want you to hear this. That does not mean that since she has met the real Jesus, there has not been times where she's wanted to throw him off a cliff, just like these people. There's not been times where she's hated his word. There's not been times when she has despised what he's been telling her. And there's not been times where she's been overwhelmed by his love and lifted up by him. And there's not been times where she's been brought low by him. You see, if if you've never been disrupted by Jesus, brought low, lifted high, overwhelmed with his love and at the same time hating his word and all of these conflicting things. This is how Jesus is. He's disruptive. If you've never been disrupted by Jesus, then there is a great chance that you've never really met Jesus. And the Jesus that you're worshiping is only a figment of your imagination. Something that you've named Jesus, something that may have some of the attributes of Jesus, but it's not the real Jesus. The real Jesus is disruptive. If there's never been a time where you've been angry at God, I don't even think you know God. He disrupts your life. He changes your life. If there's not been a time where you felt overwhelmed by the grace of God and you've never really met Jesus, the real Jesus, is always disruptive. Secondly, the second thing to think about as we think about responding to Jesus, the gospel the good news of Jesus, the advance of the kingdom, the way that the kingdom is going to afford, the gospel is believed by and received by the spiritually poor, the spiritually captive, the spiritually blind, those who are in spiritual bondage. Those are the people, those are the people that God somehow meets, the spiritually poor. Those that, as Rachel said, I loved in her story, are willing to just say, if Jesus was my life, he can have it. It's not worth that much. Have you ever been spiritually poor? Those are the people that actually meet Jesus. Those are the people that actually surrender to Jesus. These people of Nazareth here, they're the synagogue goers, right? I mean, they're in the synagogue. They know the passage, Isaiah, they've read it many times. They know the three themes that Alex Matier laid out. They know. These are spiritually rich folk. And guess what? You know what they did? They rejected their own Messiah. The Messiah that the Old Testament had been telling about, their great hope, he's standing right before him. They rejected their own Messiah. They were blinded by their spiritual wealth. I know a lot of people here today and you come and you say, well, I know I'm not spiritually wealthy. I got a lot of work to work on, Pastor. But maybe you're spiritually middle class. It's the spiritual poor. Hear this. It's the spiritual poor that see Jesus. Not the ones that say, I, I got some things to work on too. 
No, it's, it's those that realize, man, without him, I am doomed. Without him, I'm desperate. Jesus is always disruptive. The gospel, the kingdom of Jesus is believed by and received by the spiritually poor. Third, the gospel is often, the gospel often comes to and is believed by and received by the physically poor, the physically captive, the physically blind, the ones that are in physical bondage. Now, it's not that this is necessarily a requirement to be saved. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, not many of you were of noble birth. He doesn't say not any of you were of noble birth. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were powerful. It's not be outside the pale that you can come to know the Lord uh, when you're not physically blind or physically poor or physically bondage. I just want to say this. It's just hard to. It's just uncommon. It's just very, very rare. When people were physically spent, when the widow's son had died, that's when she came to believe. When Naaman, this powerful man, it, was, it wasn't until he was desperate in his leprosy that he came to know Jesus. You know the great thing about money? You know the great thing about money? Is that it just solves a lot of problems, doesn't it? It's awesome. Like you into a problem, you can kind of buy your way out of it usually. It's great. You know the great thing about power? You know, the great thing about power is that when you're powerful, people rarely say no to you, right? They want to agree with you. It's great, right? Money, power. These are awesome. But they make it very difficult to ever be dependent. They make it very difficult to ever be spiritually poor. See, It's usually when people are physically poor, physically hurting, physically broken, physically in bondage, that their spiritual eyes are opened up enough to realize their true spiritual condition. It's very difficult when you have, when, you know, some of you that have a great deal of money, you rarely do anything you don't want to do. And that's great. Like, it's been a long time for some of y'all since you've cleaned a toilet. And that is great. And some of you have powerful positions, like, and you've worked really hard, and you have a power, and it's, and it's rare for anyone to disagree with you. It's rare for people to tell you no, because you're, you're a big shot. And you know, that's, that's great. And I'm not saying that, I'm, I'm happy for you. But I'm just saying, watch out. It's easier, it's easier to realize your spiritual poverty when you're also physically in poverty. It's easier to realize your spiritual sickness when you're also physically sick. You see, it, it's easier to realize your need for a savior when you're needy. The kingdom of heaven is for the spiritually poor, but a lot of time it takes us being physically poor or physically captive or physically weak to ever experience it. And so I just want to say this to the to the powerful here today and to the weak person here today, don't despise your weakness. Your weakness is actually a gift. It's actually something that helps your eyes to be open. It's actually something that helps you realize that you can be filled. It's actually something, to real, it's actually what could release you from your captivity, you see. Don't despise your weakness. These are good things that God has given us to shape us and to make us dependent on him. Fourthly, when you really encounter the kingdom of God, it changes the way you look at other people. It changes the way you look at other people. How do you look at the world? How do you look at the world? We had a great uh, film festival on Friday night. I had so much fun at it. If you didn't come, you really missed out. We'll do it again. But it was really, it was really great. And I know I'm probably not supposed to do this because I don't want to give away too much of the plot line. But Thorne, I'm sorry, Thorne, if I'm messing up here. I don't know where you are. I can't see you, so I feel good. Oh, there you are. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> but Thorne's film, Thorne made a film, and it was so good. And there was a very clear, and I'm sorry, Thorne, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but they should have come on Friday. But Thorne's film, there's a clear protagonist, and there's a clear antagonist, okay, in the film. And something shocking happens in it. Something shocking happened in it. It's called Penance was the name of the film. In the end, they're both saved, <laughs> In the end, they're both redeemed. In the end, they both are healed. 
And it was surprising to me. I wasn't expecting it. It, it was different than most movies, right? And as I was watching it and obviously thinking about this passage, I was like, well, that's what the gospel is like. There are no rivalries in the kingdom of heaven. There are no enemies in the kingdom of heaven. There, there are only people waiting to be redeemed in this kingdom. And if you know this kingdom, it totally changes the way you look at the outside world. If you know this, if you know this kingdom, then you realize that without Jesus, we're all outsiders. As Matt said earlier, you look at somebody that's in poverty and you realize that's me. That's who I am. You, you look at somebody that's broken, you say, that, that's, that's what my heart does without Jesus. You look at somebody that's deep in, 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 in some sin, in some bondage, some addiction, whatever it is, and you say, that, that's exactly what I do without the saving work of Jesus. There's no rivalries. There's no enemies. It's, this is, Jesus has come to bring the Israeli and the Syrian together. That's what the gospel can do. Even Naaman can be your brother. That's a striking message. The gospel totally changes the way that we see outsiders. And lastly, as we think about how we will respond to the conqueror, when you really encounter Jesus, when you really encounter his kingdom, it changes the way that you see yourself. You know the problem with these people of Nazareth is that they miss the point. You know, when, when Jesus came to them and he said, hey, I've got good news for the poor. I've got liberty for the captive. I've got, I'm going to bind up the brokenhearted. You know what they thought? You know what they thought he was saying? He was saying, oh, good, good. Because we're the poor. We're the brokenhearted. We're the captive. And Jesus is going to defeat the Romans for us. And he is going to bind up our broken. He's going to be with us and with us and with us and with us. Ah, yes, Jesus has come to serve me. And he starts mentioning somebody else that wasn't me. And what do they want to do? They want to throw him off a cliff. When you really encounter Jesus, it changes the way you see yourself. Look, here's the deal, guys. You are not the main character of human history. The, 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 the universe does not center on you. And when you meet Jesus, and only when you meet Jesus, do you really begin to see that? I mean, really begin to see that. And I shared with you a few weeks ago, you know, I, I really believe that before sin entered the world, Adam was barely aware of himself and totally aware of God. That's the way we were made to be, to where our mind wouldn't go to ourself first, we would go to God first. We, we would see the whole world, not through the lens of ourself and our experience, but through the lens of God. I really believe before sin, Adam was totally aware of God and barely aware of himself. And I believe that because he didn't even know that he was naked until he sinned. And you have to be pretty unself-aware to be naked and not know it. But why is that? Because Adam was right. His mind was in line with what was actually real. He, he believed that God was primary in his life because God is primary in all of life. And of course, ever since Adam sinned, those roles have been reversed. We see ourselves first and we see God as someone who comes to help us. But when you meet Jesus, when you really encounter him, this begins to change. You, 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 it's not that it goes away immediately, but you less and less and less take center stage in the story. You more and more and more become a supporting cast member. You more and more and more become to see, come to see the world the way it actually is. And, and, and only Jesus can do this in your life. And, and I'm telling you, he does do this in your life. This is what Jesus has come to do. He's come, he, he, the conqueror has come. The conqueror has come. And his kingdom is going forward. And it's going forward among unexpected people. And it's going forward in an unexpected way. The conqueror has even come all the way over here to Atlanta, Georgia. Who knew 2,000 years ago in Nazareth, a man standing up in a synagogue would have implications for a bunch of people in Atlanta, Georgia 2,000 years later. But this kingdom has gone forward. And it's come here, and it's here now. And I want you to see this, that Jesus has come to you not with a sword, but with compassion and mercy and with a word of truth. And that in him you can be healed. In him you can be made right. In him your, your life can be put back in order, as you heard about with Rachel earlier. You see, Jesus was able to, to raise the widow's son. He was able to help the widow because, you see, he was the son 
<laughs> that died. He, he totally understood her pain. He could totally be in that situation because he understood what it meant for a son to die, for all to be lost. But it meant for that son, son to be raised and for all to be redeemed. Jesus could take on Naaman's leprosy and heal Naaman of leprosy because Jesus takes on all of our sins, all of our infirmities. He takes on all of our diseases and he heals us. And I love what, I love what, you know, in the story in 2 Kings when it talks about Naaman being healed, you know what it says about his skin? This old crusty general man, it said it was skin like a baby's. You know what you're supposed to see in that, 2 Kings? You're supposed to see a new birth has happened. A renewal has happened. And that's exactly what Jesus wants to do for you, to renew you, to make you new, to make you right, to redeem you. The conqueror has come. He has a posture toward us of mercy, of love, of healing. The question is, how will we respond? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would not be like these people in Nazareth who rejected their own redeemer, who rejected this uh, Messiah that they had long been hoping in, hoping for. But Father, I pray that our hearts would be soft and uh, Lord, that we would, we would submit to the conqueror. We would submit to his words. We would submit to his healing and we'd be healed. We've been made right. And then, Father, with, with that same posture, Father, I pray that we would scatter. We'd go over this city, Father, with, with words of truth, with hearts of compassion, with healing in our hands, Father. And so, Lord, by uh, this word today, by the testimony of, of your daughter, Rachel, I pray, Father, that these uh, truths would be pressed into our hearts and that Jesus will be found in our lives. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.